rest. We talk about it a lot, but it seems so elusive. Even when you get some rest, it seems like that refreshment, it just doesn't last very long. Would you be surprised if I told you that there was a fully developed theology of rest within the pages of scripture? And it's not what you're thinking, because biblical rest is so much more than just a one day a week shadow of better days ahead. Well, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and if you are a regular listener, you might have noticed that I sound a little nasally. (laughs) You might have also noticed that it's been a while since my last episode, and in the middle of a pandemic, from those two clues, you might have already deduced that I'm recovering from the vid. Yep. I've been perfectly healthy for the last two years, but this last two weeks, it was a doozy. But I'm once again starting to feel better, even if I don't sound that good. And I'm excited to jump into today's topic, because the one thing I've gotten a lot of over the last two weeks is rest. But that's not why we're talking about rest on today's episode. Today, we're taking a full episode to delve a little deeper into the Rethinking Rest Project and I've been working on it for years. In the last episode, I briefly introduced some of the theological projects on which I'm working, and this is the first one that's gonna be more fully developed. So, biblical rest. Let's just begin with a couple questions, and I'd like you to just take some time and maybe even pause the podcast after I ask the questions to really think about what it is that you associate with this concept of biblical rest. So when I say biblical rest in those terms, what comes to mind for you? I mean, what kind of feelings come up? I'm going to guess that if you've spent any time at all in an evangelical church setting, there might be a little bit of guilt associated with the idea of biblical rest. Maybe feelings that you don't quite measure up to a particular standard that was given to you. And I'd like you to think about just for a second, what kind of standards were handed down to you? When you think about biblical rest and what God would desire for you to have surrounding that topic, what type of expectations do you think are on the table? We'll get back to that in just a few minutes. But before we do, I'd like to pose a second question. And this one may be a little more convoluted for you. What relationship does Sabbath have to biblical rest? And I'll let you think about that for just a second. What relationship does Sabbath have to biblical rest? And you might be wondering if there is a difference between biblical rest and Sabbath. And when we start thinking that way, like two different topics have a similar meaning, it's probably a good time to start defining some terms because this is where we usually get stuck on this topic. When someone brings up the idea of Sabbath, most people just automatically default to the Ten Commandments, uh, ones found in Exodus 20, and then repeat it again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'll read from Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And that's the commandment found in Exodus chapter 20 that we often refer to when we talk about Sabbath. Interestingly, you may not have ever noticed this, but in Deuteronomy 5, those same Ten Commandments are repeated again. And when it comes to the Sabbath commandment, and it begins in Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, there are some differences. So let me just read through Deuteronomy 5 now, just so we begin with the same basis. Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant or your female servant may rest as well as you. So there's a little bit of difference in the first three verses, but then in verse 15, it completely shifts. And it says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And so what's the difference? Well, in the Exodus passage, it ties the idea of a weekly Sabbath rest back to the seventh day of creation where God rested. But here in Deuteronomy, it suggests that this weekly day of rest should be tied back to the idea of being in slavery in Egypt for the Israelites and that coming out of that slavery, God commanded them to observe a Sabbath day. So there's a little bit of difference between the two. That's not going to be my main focus today, but it's something that I think a lot of people don't realize because you might not have even realized that there was a second passage that included the Ten Commandments. But I think that's interesting that the idea of Sabbath doesn't only go back to the seventh day of creation in Genesis, but it also is somehow tied to the idea of leaving the place of slavery in Egypt, which eventually leads to the Israelites entering the promised land land, a land, by the way, that is characterized by the idea of rest. It's a place where the Israelites could rest. More on that later, but let's hop out of the history of it and bring it into our modern day setting, because this is where our confusion is. When we talk about Sabbath, we talk about the idea of biblical rest. Most people default to the idea that God's expectation for us in rest is to take one day a week and to experience something different on that one day a week than we do the rest of the week. But we can't even agree (laughs) what the weekly Sabbath should be. And this is a big part of the problem. And also, this may be where some of the guilt comes in, because we've all heard sermons. And if you haven't, just look some up on the internet. They're everywhere. And they're sermons in which a preacher hands down his or her idea about what the weekly Sabbath should be. And my guess is that if you've ever heard one of those sermons in that setting, you left with the idea that you don't quite measure up. And maybe you don't even want to try. Because there are so many different ideas about what the weekly Sabbath might be, 
that people rarely get past a simple definition of the term. Most people think that the Sabbath is really only about this fourth commandment idea. But the fourth commandment is really only a small sliver of what the Bible says about Sabbath. And most people that go to church can't even agree what that commandment even means. Just to give you some ideas. Some of the contemporary views based on different interpretations of this commandment. There are people in the church that believe that the weekly Sabbath commandment still applies today and that it refers to a period of time from Friday night to Saturday night. Well, we know that the seventh-day Sabbath in the Old Testament was a 24-hour period of time that began at sunset on Friday night, and some people in the church today think that Christians should return to a Sabbath observance that mimics this Old Testament commandment. So we've got that group of people. And then there is another group of people that believe that Sunday's the day. Because some Bible readers notice that in the New Testament, the church would gather on Sundays. And people in this group would agree that Saturday was the Old Covenant Sabbath, but Christians today are under a New Covenant and that the example is to observe Sabbath on Sunday. So just those first two ideas, Friday to Saturday and Sunday, there's a big discussion out there just about that. But then you throw in a couple more ideas that make it even more complicated. Because there's another group that believes that any day could be your Sabbath or maybe even a part of any day. And people in this group believe that there's really nothing special about one day over any other day. They think that God has given us more flexibility than that in the New Covenant. And they would say that God doesn't really care what day it is. And in fact, a Christian might even be able to piecemeal parts of days together throughout the week to fulfill the Sabbath idea. So for instance, you might have a three-hour period of time on Tuesday afternoon that you consider part of your Sabbath in the week. And then you might have... Thursday night to Friday at noon for a little bit more, and then maybe you take some time to be with your family on Saturday. And in so doing, you've somehow fulfilled this idea that we need to take some time away from what we normally do to delve into this idea of Sabbath. But that's not even it, because there's a whole nother group that would say, you know what, Christ is the Sabbath. And people in this group look at some of the statements that Jesus made regarding rest, and they come to the conclusion that the idea of Sabbath is really just something that points to Jesus and his ministry. But honestly, what does that even mean? (laughs) And while it sounds like a good church answer, and you know what a good church answer is, it's any question that you're not quite sure what the answer is. You could say Jesus, love, or the Bible, and you probably have a good chance of getting that, that question correct. So while this idea of Jesus being somehow our Sabbath, while it sounds like a great church answer, this type of view is really hard to pin down. And sometimes it seems to lack boots on the ground practicality. I mean, what does it really even mean to just say that Jesus is my Sabbath? Does that mean that when I come to faith, I've stepped into Sabbath and I experience it? Or is it something more beyond that idea? And so when we step into the conversation in our modern day setting, and we ask the question that I asked, what relationship does the Sabbath have to biblical rest? Most people go straight to the controversy surrounding the seventh day Sabbath 
And we get stuck in conversations where we can't even define what the seventh day Sabbath even means. And it's that idea that has caused a whole generation of believers to abandon the idea of Sabbath. And that seems like a really sweeping, broad generalization. But I'm guessing just by asking the questions that I've asked thus far, we wouldn't be able to come to any great consensus as to what it is that God expects of us regarding rest. And most people would just default to the idea that it is some sort of a weekly expectation that I can't live up to and I may not even have any interest in trying. And usually in our conversations, when we talk about this idea, we get stuck in a loop where we're talking about the Ten Commandments and trying to figure out what role the Ten Commandments play in our lives today as New Testament believers. We go back to Genesis and we look at the days of creation. And by the way, there's absolutely no controversy about how to read the days of creation, is there? Well, of course there is. There's so many different ways that people read the first three chapters in Genesis that coming to any type of a conclusion about what God experienced on the seventh day when it said he rested and any reasons why he may have rested on that day, those conclusions, they always seem just a little bit out of reach. Well, the Rethinking Rest Project is the culmination of years of study that I've done on the topic. And in this episode, I'm not even going to try to unpack everything that I found, but I do want to bring up a lot of questions. My hope is that people will not disengage from the topic like we have been tempted to do. And why is it that I don't want to disengage? Because there is one passage in the New Testament that I think is the defining passage when it comes to this concept of biblical rest, and even, yes, the idea of Sabbath, and it approaches it from a New Testament perspective, a new covenant perspective, and it suggests that we cannot abandon this idea, that we need to push through our current confusion, define our terms better, and come out the other side with some sort of a practical application that isn't guilt-ridden, doesn't cause one to become so tired with the topic that they just want to leave it alone. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 contains an extended discussion about biblical rest, and it concludes with an idea in chapter 4 that might be surprising. It says this, starting in verse 8, For if Joshua, that Old Testament character Joshua, if he had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us, the reader of the Hebrews passage, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The example of disobedience, had taken them back to that wilderness generation earlier in the passage that came out of Egypt. It's a group of people that wandered around in the wilderness, had an opportunity to enter the land of rest and experience God's provision in that rest, and yet they didn't choose to do that, that one generation. It was their children, the next generation that went in. There's some logic here that is very important because it brings up Joshua. 
And Joshua is that leader that led the second generation out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And it says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he, not Joshua there, that's a capital H, he in the translation, and I believe it's correctly translated as a capital H, referring to God. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day after that. And so the logic in the Hebrews passage that the author of Hebrews is wanting its reader to follow is that this progression out of slavery into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land a generation later, that progression was spoken of as a progression from slavery to rest. But that wasn't the rest that God is offering now. Because there was another day where David, much later in the progression, through a psalm, speaks of another day of rest. And the conclusion is, in verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And notice how that's worded. It doesn't say that there remains a weekly Sabbath observance for the people of God. It says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And then there's this really confusing sentence in verse 10. You may want to actually look it up because it has a bunch of capital letters that refer to God. And I'll do my best to clarify as I read it. It says in verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest, that's God's rest, has himself, that person who has entered God's rest, he has also rested from his own work as God did from God's own work. It's a very confusing sentence. But this is the key to what remains of Sabbath rest for the people of God today. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to explain, is that there is an opportunity for believers today to enter into some sort of a rest, God's rest. And in so doing, if I'm able to do that as a believer, I rest from my work in the same way that God rested from his work. What's that even talking about? When was it that God rested from a week of work? Well, obviously, that's going back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And if pressed, most people think that God rested on day 7, but the real question is, and I want you to actually flip there if you have a Bible open, I just would like you to look at what it says God did on day 8, because this is really the crux of the question. What did God do on day 8? We all know that he rested on day seven, even though we may not be totally sure what that means or why. But the question is, what does the text say that God did on day eight? And if you're looking, you might be having a hard time finding it because it's not in the text. It doesn't really overtly say what God did, but there's some clues given in the way the story of creation is told that might suggest to us that we could understand what God did on day eight. And what are those clues? Well, one of those clues is a literary device that is used by the author of Genesis to show repetition. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I was an English minor in college. I taught English for a while. And if you look into any serious literature, you know that there are certain literary devices that authors use to more fully develop ideas as the story progresses. And the author of Genesis does this. You might not have ever even noticed it or identified it as such. But at the end of each of the days of creation, there's a specific wording that the author uses. Begins here in verse 5. says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. And then again in verse 8, 
God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Verse 13 has it again, there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Verse 19, there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Verse 23, a fifth day. And the chapter concludes in verse 31 with, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So that concludes this progression of repetition, but there's also another repetition that the author concludes on the last verse of chapter one, because all through the creation, things are being described as good. It began in verse four, God saw that the light was good. And then again in verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. In verse 12, he had brought forth vegetation, and God saw that that was good. In 18, God saw that the separation of light from darkness was good, that the great sea monsters in 21 were good, and that the beasts of the earth and their kind were also good in verse 25. So he's used this other form of repetition, not just the evening and morning motif at the end of each day, but along the progression of creation, God has described his creation as good. And then in verse 31, what he does is he ties both of those repetitions up with a nice, neat bow, and we never see them again. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There's a change in the repetition. And very next sentence, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then we head into chapter two. Now the chapter designations don't mean anything. They came much later in the process. So this is just the same story. It just continues from verse 31 into the first verse of chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all of their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And that's the end of the first account of creation. Verse three of chapter two is the end of this opening story of creation. And I just want to ask, did you notice what happened on day seven? The repetition ended. Everything was considered very good at the end of chapter one. The evening and morning motif was repeated for day six. And then there was the seventh day and God rested. And like I said earlier, what I usually ask people is what did God do on the eighth day? Because it's the type of rest that he enters into on day seven that the author of Hebrews says our rest is similar to the rest that God entered into when he stopped his work. So the key is what did God do on the eighth day? And I usually answer my own question this way. In regards to God's rest, the Bible does not suggest there was an eighth day. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't mean that literally. There there was literally an eighth day. That's obvious, or it should be obvious. <laughs> but what I mean is literarily, there was no eighth day. Because literarily, at the end of each of the days of creation, the author has lulled us to sleep using his evening and morning formula. And he breaks from that to highlight a change that is significant. And the change is, that there was no end of day seven in the literary version of the text, which suggests to me that the rest that God entered into didn't end because the seventh day literarily has not ended. 
Now, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about it that way, but studying the Bible as a piece of great literature as well as the inspired word of very God himself would suggest that whatever it was that God entered into on the seventh day of creation, whatever type of rest that was, it was not a situation that he abandoned the next day and went back to work, at least not the type of work that he had been doing on the first six days of creation. And if that's the way we're supposed to read it, why is that significant? It's significant because the author of Hebrews, in probably the most significant discussion about rest from a New Testament covenantal perspective, the author of Hebrews equates what's available today, the type of experience that we can experience today, it's the same type of rest that God experienced on day seven. And if God entered into a rest on day seven and never left it, that suggests that there is something that God has created, a type of rest that goes so far beyond a one day a week shadow ministry that we read about in the Old Testament. There is a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. For the believer who has entered God's rest, that believer has rested from their own work just as God did from his on the seventh day of creation. And the author of Hebrews finishes this way. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. And this is the culmination of two chapters in the book of Hebrews, where the author has delved into this idea of rest. And if you were to take the time to read those two chapters, here's what you'll find. In the most important discussion of biblical rest from a New Testament perspective, the author references so many different Old Testament ideas, but there's one place the author never goes, and there's one person the author never mentions in this discussion. The book of Hebrews does not take us back to Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the idea of a weekly Sabbath in its discussion of rest. What he does mention is God's rest on the seventh day of creation. He doesn't mention Moses, but he mentions Joshua who succeeded Moses. And then he quotes a psalm that through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, David wrote. The author doesn't mention the weekly Sabbath commandment at all, but that's exactly where we go when we talk about this concept. That's where our minds go. When I asked you what comes to your mind when I say biblical rest and what relationship does Sabbath have to biblical rest? The majority of believers today go directly to Exodus chapter 20, but that's not where the author of Hebrews says we should be going. There's more to this concept than just a one day a week shadow ministry that was set up to point to something better. And what is it that's better? Well, at its core, I will suggest this, whatever God has as a fulfillment of this idea, it's not going to bury somebody in guilt. It's not going to overwhelm them with a list of things that they can or cannot do. When I was a youth minister, I often would say, you know, if Jesus were sitting here with us today and I just asked him the question, I've got a special guest today. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Let me get your mic opened up here. Jesus, thanks for coming in today. When we dive into biblical rest, Jesus, what type of rest is it that you were wanting us to get to? My guess is if I pose that type of question to the creator of the universe, his response 
is not going to include some sort of a list of rules about what you should be or shouldn't be doing to accomplish something one day a week. My guess is that whatever rest he has in mind, it's an all-encompassing rest because God has something better in mind. As we wrap up this discussion on biblical rest, my hope is that for those of you out there that have sort of abandoned this topic, that you've kind of concluded that the Sabbath is something that you're not interested in because of whatever reason, I hope that this discussion coming out of the book of Hebrews has sparked an interest in the possibility that there's something that hasn't been a part of our discussion thus far. And it's something that would be so freeing and so exciting that any type of a seventh-day Sabbath celebration would pale in comparison. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And I've got to believe if God created it and God entered into it on the seventh day of creation, and he's inviting us into it through that example, I've got to believe that it's so much bigger and so much better than any box I've tried to put it in in the past. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm a little bit passionate about rest. And it's because I've spent a little bit of time, a lot of time, looking into the idea from a biblical perspective. And I'm very excited about what I've found. And that's the Rethinking Rest Project. It's what I've written my first book about that will come out hopefully by the end of this calendar year. And when that happens, I plan on revisiting this topic in much more detail. But until the book comes out, if you have any interest, if today has sparked any interest in the topic, I would invite you to one place I haven't really talked very much about at all. Uh, We've mentioned the RethinkingScripture.com website, and that is the hub for all the projects and a lot of my teaching. But there is a whole nother sister site, RethinkingRest.com, that I've developed in anticipation of this book coming out later in the year. And at that site, I've got a fully developed Bible study with teaching videos from when I was a pastor. So if you do have any interest, I would just say head on over to RethinkingRest.com. Poke your way around that site a little bit. And if any further questions come up or ideas, I'd love to hear from you as I prepare the final edits on my book. Any feedback that I'm able to get along the way is very helpful. And you can just use the contact forms right there on the website. Well, that's all I've got for today. And in the next episode, we're going to dive into another Rethinking Scripture project, Rethinking Eden. And we'll look in a little more detail how people are reading the story of Eden and Adam and Eve and the fall into sin. And my guess is that I'll probably be introducing some ideas that maybe you haven't thought about before. Thanks again for listening. And please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.